I'll be reading from John 4, verses 1 to 30. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had had to go through Samaria, so he came, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jesus, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from, drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man, you, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and, went and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Good morning, St. Clair. Hello. Happy new decade. Ooh, very interesting. I even uh, watched, I was so excited for the new decade because when I was younger, 2020 seemed so far away that I watched Back to the Future during the Christmas break because I was super pumped for the new decade. And at one moment during the Christmas break, my wife said to me, you're turning 50. 
this decade. So please pray for me later. There'll be a time of weeping and mourning uh, after the service. But we are entering into a new decade uh, as a church community. Uh, Just to say at the back corners, you may see uh, looking back and looking forward. For those who were here last week, uh, we used our Sunday morning to take some time to reflect uh, on the year that's gone and the year that's ahead. And I just want to say thanks to everyone who participated. Sometimes when you do something new on a Sunday morning, it can feel terrifying because it's not the norm. But just to see everyone participate in that was really uh, encouraging, I think, pastorally. And as we've moved into Ryerson and used this space, as a team, we're constantly trying to pray through and ask, how do we use our Sunday mornings well? There's parts of our Sunday that we think are deeply important in how we worship God, how we pray, how we spend time in silence. But we're constantly asking, how do we use this time wisely? And so while last week may have been a bit out of the norm, it's something we want to be aware of and being open to the Spirit as we move forward. Each year, uh, when we come to the new year as a pastor, I always kind of take the first Sunday to pray and ask God, what could be a theme or maybe a word for us entering into the new year? I think it's always important that we pause and ask, what are some of the things that we feel may God, that God may have for us as we enter into this new year that's ahead of us? And as I was praying, I was I was struck by a quote I heard years ago by Victor Hugo, who's a French novelist. You may have heard of Les Miserables, you know, just this small thing that he wrote. And he says this. There is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And as I was praying through that, the word that kept coming to mind was the word humility. And I wonder for St. Clair and for the people of God, whether there's nothing more powerful this year than for us to more deeply understand humility and what that means for our community. I was struck by this because I honestly believe we live in a world of, you just have to look around or maybe go online. There's a sense of ego, hubris, grandstanding, like we're constantly trying to push an image of ourselves. And yet the way of Jesus is always a way of humility. In fact, in Matthew 11, some verses we think about a lot at St. Clair, where Jesus says, come to me or you're weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So as people who follow Jesus and St. Clair's vision is we would be disciples of Jesus who live as a family on mission, I think learning what humility is helps us to better understand who Jesus is. Now, one of those uh, famous quotes that comes up around humility is this. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. Uh, Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. And so that sounds one of those great quotes. And I think there's some truth in that, but I think humility goes a lot deeper than that. And we're going to unpack that this morning. And the story that kept coming to mind, which might seem unusual when we think about humility, is the story of the woman at the well. And so as I prayed about that and thought about that for this year, I think there's some threads in the story of the woman at the well that will be important for us as a church community. And also it will unpack this theme of humility. So if you have a Bible, feel free to dive in. I'm going to retell the story because it's a lot of verses. And as we do, I'm going to pick out some things from the story that I think we should be thinking about for this year ahead. Verse 1 is important. Uh, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees 
had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. We fully believe at St. Clair that discipleship is a participation sport. We don't think that there's certain people who are called of Jesus to be disciples and then this other group who are just maybe not as good. So I love the fact Jesus, uh, people got confused because they thought it was Jesus baptizing because Jesus' commission is always to all of us to take on his ministry. And so right there in the scripture, Jesus is saying, oh, you can be people who baptize others. It says Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. What's interesting, I've never seen this before, is the couple of chapters before, Jesus starts out in Jerusalem, he moves to Judea, and then in this passage is in Samaria. Maybe some of you from your uh, memory verse days recognize that scripture in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So I think what Jesus is modeling here is something not just geographically, but for the people that Jesus interacted with. And we'll get onto that in a moment. Verse four, now we had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, as he was And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So Jesus has to go through Samaria, which sometimes when you read the Bible, you just assume uh, that the gospel writers are trying to point out just where Jesus is. But that's deeply significant because anyone who knows anything about Samaria, and we see the allusions in the passage, know that this is not a place where Jews would often go. In some ways, Jesus has to go back to Galilee, so he has to go through this space. But there's something very intentional that's happening here. Because Jesus is interacting with a people group that he should not be interacting with. I was thinking about, uh, in our modern uh, context, it might be someone from Ancaster trying to get to Burlington and having to go through downtown Hamilton. <gasps> Horrendous. But sometimes it may take you that way. Jesus is route is taking him sometimes to a space he doesn't intend to go. And Jesus, it says, he's tired and he rests by Jacob's well. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but the illusion of what the well means throughout the scripture is really interesting. Because often in the Old Testament, when we see a well, obviously there's allusion to water, but also it's a place of commitment or even betrothal in the Old Testament. There's many places where um, there's some marriage imagery going on. So when we see later, it's as if Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman, would you leave these lesser loves and join your love to me? But that's a whole other sermon. So Jesus is at the well, and he's tired from the journey, and this Samaritan woman comes and approaches him. What I love about this story is Jesus seems to have time to be interrupted in his daily life. If you remember what Jesus is saying, it says he's actually going somewhere else, and he just happens to pass through Samaria. But in being there, Jesus seems to be interrupted by this woman, but doesn't push her to one side, but pays attention to what the Spirit might be saying. 
And I wonder if we think about this new year that's ahead of us, whether God may be calling our attention to what's happening here and now in the present. My life gets really busy, and often I'm thinking about the next thing I need to do, or the next place I have to go, or the next engagement that I have. And I wonder if the Lord's saying, oh, right here and now, I'm at work in your life. Ronald Rollheiser says this, true restfulness is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. What if God is actually where we are, not just somewhere else? In his book, The Shattered Lantern, this quote comes from a chapter where one of Rollheiser says, one of the greatest challenges we face as followers of Jesus is restlessness. We always assume God is somewhere else that will be better off for us. And Rollheiser says, what if God is right in our midst? The question is, are we willing to pay attention? See, this interaction with the Samaritan woman happens because Jesus is able to be interrupted from his normal routine. And what's frightening about the life of Jesus is the amount of times he is interrupted as he's going somewhere. Maybe when we're in our neighborhood, when we take a walk for the day, when we go to the coffee shop or the grocery store or in our workplaces, they're not just to get us to somewhere else, but they are the very place where God is at work. So Jesus is tired and he sits down at the well. And the next thing we see is a Samaritan woman appears. The scripture says it's at noon that she shows up, which should be really significant if you know the context, because most people or the women in that culture would draw water first thing in the morning, because at noon, it's the hottest part of the day. And yet she is by herself. Most people in Middle Eastern culture, particularly the women, would gather as a group, would all take their water jars in community and then go back to their home. And so she's by herself and she's isolated. And we discover later the reason that she's by herself is that she has this deep sense of shame and she's somewhat been outcast from the community. So this is a safe place for her to go because she knows people in the community won't be talking about her and she can be by herself. So she comes to draw water and Jesus is there And Jesus' first response is to give her the four spiritual laws and tell her why she should follow him. No, Jesus' first response is to ask her a question, which I think is very important. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what I love about the story is Jesus is taking a risk because he's interacting with a Samaritan woman. If you know anything about the context and the culture, as I said before, Samaria is an interesting place for Jews because Samaritans were seen as half-Jews, not real Jews. And there was animosity and antagonism between the two cultures so that Jews would not even associate with Samaritans. But not only that, Jesus is associating with a Samaritan woman, which is a complete and utter no-no. But for Jesus, he is always willing to take 
a risk to cross cultural boundaries to love people that no one else will love. As a church community, we're entering into our sixth-ish year. And one thing that happens when you plant a church and you become established as a church, as my friend said to me recently, Matt, you're not a church plant, you're just like a church now. One thing that happens when you do that is it's easy to become safe and comfortable. And so what we do is we just do the right things that churches should do. And we don't take risks because if we took a risk, it would unsettle things that we've now gone into habits and patterns of ways of being. Back in September, our leadership team took a retreat and someone was helping us look back on our journey in order to help us look ahead to the next few years. And this person said to us, what do you dream of or what are the things you long to see happen in St. Clair over the next few years? And so we wrote some great things down that we thought were really amazing and impressive. And he said, oh yeah, but you could accomplish that by yourselves. What are the things God's calling you to do that you can only do because you have to trust him? And as I reflected back on our journey, two of the key things that were involved early on in our story were our involvement with refugees or new arrivals in our community, and also those who've been most marginalized or forgotten about. A dear friend of mine, when praying for St. Clair in the early stages, said this, if you take care of the least of these, I'll take care of your church. And so I wonder that as we come into this stage of being settled, where God is saying to us, where are the boundaries and the spaces we need to go that will take a risk? Because Jesus seems to always be doing that because he's desperate to draw people to himself. So Jesus, in this interaction with the Samaritan woman, his first response is to say to her, I'm thirsty, can you give me something to drink? In that moment, Jesus offers a posture of humility in his interaction with this woman. He doesn't go straight in and give her the answers that he thinks she needs to hear. He first of all asks a question. As we interact with other people, one of our postures always has to be to seek first to understand, not be understood. Father Gregory Boyle says this, who works in LA with some of the poorest people in, the, in a community that he works with there, he says this, if you're humble, you'll ask the poor what would help you. But if you're led by hubris, then you tell the poor, here's what your problem is, here's how you fix yourself. See, Jesus here first of all says, oh, let me understand who you are and what your story is. And so Jesus is led by humility. It's interesting that the Latin word, the word humility or humble has its roots in the Latin word, which means soil or earth. So there's a sense of earthiness or even dust that comes from the word humble. And I think that's interesting because God created humankind from the dust, Genesis says. And so what we remember is when we think about humility, that we as human beings are not self-made. God created us and we are his. One person when writing about humility says this, many people believe that humility is the opposite of pride, when in fact it is a point of equilibrium. The opposite of pride is actually a lack of self-esteem. 
A humble person is totally different from a person who cannot recognize and appreciate himself as part of the world's marvels. And so true humility isn't thinking less of ourselves or being self-depreciating. That's a definite trait that British people have in abundance. Our response to anything is always to be self-depreciating. And sometimes there's some humor in that, but actually that can rob us from deeply understanding who we are. And so I wonder as followers of Jesus whether we should adopt this posture of confident humility, which doesn't mean we think less of ourselves. It actually recognizes that we're created by God. We have this fresh identity of being known as children of God, and we live out of that space, but we're not constantly looking for approval or recognition. In the book of Philippians, Paul, when writing to a community there, when talking about the theme of humility, says this in verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Value others above yourself. You can do that if you know that you're secure in your identity. Because you have nothing to prove to anyone else. When we know who we are in Christ, we can look after others because we know God is going to look after us. And so this interaction, Jesus offers deep humility in how he conducts himself. And I wonder in this coming year whether we conduct ourselves in humility in the relationships we have. As we've talked many times at St. Clair, there seems to be this polarization in our world, this fragmentation. And I think that's because we always want to victimize or look at others and blame them rather than recognizing our own weakness and in doing so in offering a humble posture towards others. Henry Nouwen says this, one of the greatest dangers in the spiritual life is self-rejection. When we say, if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me, we choose the road towards darkness. Often we're made to believe that self-depreciation is a virtue called humility. But humility is in reality the opposite of self-depreciation. It is the grateful recognition that we are precious in God's eyes and that, we, and that all we are is a pure gift. To grow beyond self-rejection, we must have the courage to listen to the voice calling us God's beloved sons and daughters and the determination always to live our lives according to the truth. So Jesus has this interaction. He postures this sense of weakness towards this woman in terms of asking a question. And he even is tired and he says, can you give me something to drink? I love Jesus' posture of offering the sense of weakness in order that he can interact 
with this woman at the well. And so what happens next is this engaging conversation between this woman and Jesus and definitely some misunderstanding because Jesus says, oh, I have living water that is available to you. Which the woman seems to misunderstand because she's like, what is this living water? We're at a well. You've asked me for a drink. And Jesus says, this living water is like an eternal spring that rises up from within us. See, what Jesus isn't saying here is here is how to get to heaven when you die. It's not make a commitment today. Jesus is saying there is water available to you, which is the life of the spirit, which is here and now transforming to you. See, in order to understand what's going on, this woman had to have an encounter with Jesus and be transformed by that. See, it wasn't enough for her to get a manual on humility. The starting point of humility was Jesus making himself available to her. I love the part of the story, if we continue reading, where she eventually gets sent out, and we'll look at that in a moment. And it says this, the woman said, I know the Messiah, Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. See, this woman knew that Jesus had seen right into her very being. He says, I know the man you're not with currently is your husband. There's lots of other husbands that you've had. And in this moment of shame, Jesus offers healing towards her. And her response is to be transformed by this encounter with Jesus and then go back and tell everyone. He saw deep into my soul. He knows everything about me and yet didn't hold that against me. He offers a new way of life. For some of us, as we step into the new year, maybe some of the things that we need to let go of are the things we think about ourselves. The thoughts that constantly trouble us, that make us think we're beyond God's love and his hope. And what we actually need is a fresh encounter with Jesus. See, following Jesus isn't just a one-time meeting. It's a daily interaction. And Jesus, I think this year, wants to come and say there's areas of our lives that need healing, and that will only come from us meeting Jesus afresh on a daily basis. The one thing that really struck me about this story, and I'll I'll close with a couple of thoughts, is this. That when she meets Jesus and truly understands who she is, that she's a beloved daughter of the king, it says she leaves her water jar. That was an interesting little thing that John put in there. She's so enamored by who Jesus is, she doesn't have time to take up the water and take it back. She goes back, leaving her water jar, to share with everyone the good news of Jesus. 
But what struck me most about this story that I'd never really seen before is the story is about this person known as the woman at the well. What struck me is no one knows who she is. Now, maybe there's some cultural stuff in that with being a female, but we do read about other females in the New Testament. What struck me was no one knows who this person is, and yet she took the gospel back to the Samaritan people. And I wonder if true humility is not looking for ourselves to be recognized or be patted on the back or being told, oh, how do I raise my profile or my platform? See, one weird thing about being a pastor and being involved in Christian ministry, this is kind of a peek behind the curtain, is there always seems to be this nudging or like elbowing to get recognition and notoriety. If your church has this many people, then you're really great pastorally. And what I love about this story is there's this deep sense that we really don't know who this woman is, but there's a humility that comes from saying, what if I follow Jesus even if no one else notices? A month or so ago, I shared uh, on the on the life of Elijah found in the book of Kings. And what I talked about was this idea of hiddenness. And one of the themes I felt God say to me for this year, my own life was this theme of hiddenness. And what if we follow Jesus and no one else gives us credit for it, but we do it because we've encountered him and we love him. I'm going to read this to close. And this is an extract from the book, The Signature of Jesus by Brennan Manning. And it's about this um, French priest called Dominic Volume. And this has always struck me. It's a bit about his life and then a journal entry that he has. And I feel like if I was to hold a story up and say, this is what it looks like to live with humility this year, this would be it. This is what Brennan Manning writes. Dominic Valium moved to Paris to an extremely poor neighborhood and took a job as a night watchman in a factory. And when he got up in the morning, he went to sit on a park bench where the disillusioned and disenfranchised, the addicts and the homeless, those who'd be marginalized by society because they had nothing, usually hung out. Manning says he never criticized, scolded, or reprimanded. He laughed, told stories, shared his candy, and accepted them as they were. He goes on to say his simple witness lay in accepting others as they were without questions and allowing them to make themselves at home in his heart. At the age of 54, he was diagnosed with cancer. And one day he was found dead on the floor of his cold water flat in a Parisian slum. Dominic Valune kept a journal And this is his last entry. All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and witnesses. If he wants it to, my life will bear through through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern, not mine. It would be indecent of me to worry about it.
What if the usefulness and success of our life isn't that important in the grand scheme of things? The things we long for, the things we push for, the achievements. But actually, what if we worried less about how successful we are and just concentrated on being more obedient to who Jesus has called us to be? In a moment, Dean is going to come up and uh, share communion. Why don't we just pause for a moment before we enter, uh, come to the table. And if you're willing to, why don't we just hold out our hands uh, in front of us. And we're just going to pray for us that this year we may be a community that understand more who we are in order that we can live lives of humility to the world around us. So why don't we pray for a moment. Jesus, thank you for the life that you've shown us, not just as a good example, but also the one who is our savior, our rescuer, the one uh, whom we read about that in you is life. And so as we enter into this new year as a community, Lord, may your spirit dwell in us so that we more deeply understand who we are as children loved by you. And in doing so, we can live lives that reflect who you are to the world. God, may we be known as a community who live lives of humility, who don't live in such a way to get attention or to prove ourselves to anyone, but are hidden enough that you take the glory and the credit. Lord, we don't exist for St. Clair's fame, but we exist for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Each week at St. Clair, we close with a benediction, with a blessing that I'm going to say over you. But just before uh, I do that, as we're worshiping together, um, I was reminded of, uh, surprisingly for me, I have a quote. Uh, Dallas Willard says, the way we secure our humility is to have a vision of God. Because when we have a vision of God, we understand who he is, and in light of that, who we are. And I was struck by this passage in Revelation, and it's my prayer that for us to truly understand humility this year, we actually have a fresh revelation of Jesus. This is what John writes in Revelation. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. Matt's paraphrase, that's a lot. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is within them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. As we understand humility this year, maybe it starts with having a fresh vision of who Jesus is as the one who is gentle and humble in heart. I'm going to leave these words of encouragement on humility from Philippians. And this is maybe a charge for us in the new year. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, but I think it 
uh, maybe is some words for us as we go this year. So as you go, family and friends of St. Clair Community Church, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make God's joy complete. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. St. Clair, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value other people above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Grace and peace.